So today we have with us Robbie Cooper. She is a parent activist and advocate for children with dyslexia and other disabilities. And as a mother of a child with dyslexia, she aims to maximize student potential through sharing knowledge and research to bring about changes in policy. She served on the committee that wrote the revision of the Dyslexia Handbook in 2018, uh, the Brook the Bookshare Advisory Committee from the U.S. Department of Education, the Coalition of Disability Stakeholders with the Texas Education Agency, the Austin ISD Dyslexia Stakeholders Committee, the Decoding Dyslexia DC Hill Days Committee. Uh, she has supported her son, Ben Cooper, who has become a student advocate as well, and he's spoken at universities and to Congress. Decoding Dyslexia, she wants you to know, is a part of the Texas Dyslexia Coalition, which was formed to collaborate and unite the many dyslexia groups in Texas. The TDC, or the Texas Dyslexia Coalition, as it's called, is a group that worked alongside Robbie to develop the law and policy, and she is one of many parents who continue to work on this. The last, this most recent law that's passed is the Beckley-Wilson Act, it was a group effort where no big decisions were made without consensus is what she wants us to know. So welcome, Robbie. I'm just unmuting the bottom right corner. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Well, thank you for having me. It's so, uh, so nice to be able to talk to professionals and connect with different uh, groups on an issue that affects all of us in so many different ways. Absolutely. Oh, in, prepara in preparation for this discussion, we kind of chatted back and forth on uh, the decoding dyslexia, I guess, chat uh, feature. And, you know, I just wanted to, she, we kind of shared a little bit of, of our similar experiences of trying to advocate for children uh, with dyslexia to get the dyslexia services. So, um, but we never, I feel like we, we often hear about new laws passing, but we don't get to always talk to the people that helped pass those laws. We, and you know, like the song said, let the good times roll, that they're good times, but often it brings a lot about a, a lot of changes that kind of rock our boat. So. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. So, yes. I can imagine. <laughs> just today, I would say we, my district, just as I was leaving, you know, work to get here, Right before that, we were actually having to do district trainings on the dis different dyslexia programs offered by our district. For example, we have uh, MTA and we have, which is um, multi-sensory um, teaching approach. We have the Herman program. We have the Wilson program. So um, there's probably about five or six programs that we have. And, and I'd say that's one of the um, strengths of our district is that we actually have different, you know, the selection of programs that pe teachers in our district are trained in. Oh, that's fantastic. You're, yeah, so, yes. we, but now the diagnosticians are actually having to get, you know, trained in that so that we can also sign our evaluation reports uh, because we are, you know, the main ones testing for dyslexia. So, um, you know, we're, we are going through that training right now. And yeah. some, uh, some other things uh, we're learning about um, uh, the, with dyslexia handbook has to be actually signed by the parent now. So, you know, that making sure that we get that signature page and we're introducing that at every um, evaluation that we introduce to parents has been a new thing for us. 
And a couple of other things that we used to write dyslexia services on our schedule services page, but we would put it under the general education column. As of today, we have been instructed, instructed to put it under the special education column. So it is a special education service. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of changes in this bill and it, it will require uh, many different facets of the school system to make adjustments. Absolutely. Um, and, but I, I firmly believe in our intent all along that the, the reasons behind each individual requirement um, are to make the system a little bit stronger and more streamlined. So it should, you know, when the shift kind of gets back into the, the general swing of things, I guess, um, it should be an easier system for everybody to work within. That's our hope. And I, and I believe that if it's that that's the goal and it, and it, we can achieve that. Right. And even for transfers from other states where oh. children were receiving special education services through special education and then maybe yeah. to, you know, to, to Texas and found that, you know, it was provided under 504 before. So now that kind of makes that question not so difficult. Those should they be in, you know, should they be receiving services through special education? Absolutely, and you brought up a really um, important kind of something in reverse. Actually, one of the compelling arguments and sort of propelling me along for years has been the reverse, where students leave the state, especially our military families that leave, you know, they get notice and they have to move and they're deployed somewhere else and the family has to pick up and move and every other state um, accepts the IEP as, you know, a transferable document. And so the families that are leaving Texas, especially our more vulnerable families than our military families, will end up in another state and they have to start over again because they don't accept the services under the 504 plan. So um, that was a really big reason for me you know, sometimes when it got tough and uh, just kind of continue on and, and try and make it work um, or, or for the families that really, really need to have the documentation in place. So, <laughs> so it would be, you know, leaving Texas as well with the 504 plan was, was a very big problem. Absolutely. Um, so with me today is Candace Fiamma. She actually does uh, the evaluations several of the evaluations for dyslexia in Denton ISD. And she often helps me with moderating. And so she's going to help me with some of the questions as well. Um, we'll start a tag team here until um, for as long as she can hang on um, to the conversation here. And I know some of us have to leave early and go to um, dinner and um, um, the different, you know, get together, social get, get sure. together. But we're going to try and uh, get through these questions here. And I, I know a lot of people really had a lot of questions. People are messaging me all the time. Did you hear about this new thing from TEA that came out in this video? Or this new question and answer, most frequently asked question document? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Where yes. did you keep up with it all? <laughs> it is. Oh, my gosh. I, I know. Yeah. I, I promise it's worth it. <laughs> Welcome, Candace. Hey, thanks for having me again, Nazi. I see people in this in this audience. I think uh, two of my former coworkers, um, we got Kelly in the audience and Cliff, both are now in East Texas. So, but it's really um, just nice to see their their names and their faces on there again. So that's, this is awesome. 
Um, thank you, Robbie, for, you know, you know, letting us interview you. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Okay. So I do a whole lot of dyslexia evaluations. I, I think I've, I've done, I average about 130 a year, 130 or so. And then I've got some dysgraphia and yeah. with those and then some other, yeah. you know, related disorders like other SLD areas as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I really have become pretty much an expert with dyslexia in the last like three years. And I have to say, I do like the transition of us doing a full evaluation now because we are finding other co-occurring or comorbid um, disabilities. So that's one good aspect about this whole change. And then, I mean, it's just, it's always been specialized instruction. It's always been specially designed instruction. So, you know, it just took us a while to kind of finally make that transition. Yeah. So... Yep, this is gonna be this is gonna be interesting this year, but we'll we'll get we'll 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 be fine. We'll manage. But um, we're lucky enough in my school district that we have all of our dyslexia therapists are all Celts. Yes, you're very so lucky. We're yes. very lucky because not every school district has that, so right. we've been blessed with that as well. And just trying to get more of them to get certified because it's a long process. It doesn't take a year. Yeah. It, can, it can take up to three years sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, you start and then, you you know, the first step is always the, the hardest to get people to start and districts to commit. But it's, you know, it's beneficial all the way through their training. So they can be in training while they're learning and the kids can benefit. And it's, it's a great um, um, cert certification to get. It is. It's a win-win for everybody. It is. They have some other alternatives of getting just a uh, like a certification as a structural a structured literacy um, specialist or interventionist as well, depending yeah. on what what program they want to you know become experts in, whether it's reading by design or Wilson reading or Orton right. Gillingham. So there's other alternatives, and those are pretty intense as well, but they're just not as intense as a Celt. So Correct. yeah, Correct. so. Yeah. Yeah, we're working our way around that. Anyways, I want to ask you the first question. Um, how did you get into this whole decoding dyslexia? Like, what made you become involved? Well, I'll tell you. So, decoding dyslexia is very grassroots. Uh, it started about 10 years ago in New Jersey, and it started with parents, you know, parents that were similar to parents that you would experience in your district that decided to help try and change things, you know, um, and so be, through that, um, I, at the point when I ran into the first decoding dyslexia people, I was in Washington because I've always sort of felt that our issues in Texas were federal level issues, which, which they were, um, you know, that came to fruition through the corrective action and all that. But, but so I was in D.C., you know, talking to our legislators there, trying to get them to pay attention and trying to get into inside of the Department of Education to talk with people to see if they could help with, you know, what was going on in our state, which was keeping, you know, kids out of special ed and also the kids in special ed, kind of separating them from, you know, the experts like the cults that would be would have been providing the best instruction. Um, and so I just, I ran into these people, um, I think the first time was through, I was on the Bookshare um, Advisory Committee, that's a process in and of itself. I always felt very strongly that during intervention time that kids really benefit from assistive technology. 
uh, so that they can continue to learn. So it was through that process that I met one of the founders of Decoding Dyslexia. And she said, well, why don't you start a chapter in Texas? And um, so there was a, another lady in Texas, in Richardson ISC, I believe, that uh, had just formed a chapter. And so I connected with her. And for, for several years, she and I and some other parents in the Dallas area um, you know, really worked hard to get Decoding Dyslexia in Texas to be a little bit more organized and meaningful and purposeful. Um, so, you know, it's just, it was very loose, con a loose connection. Uh, Decoding Dyslexia is very grassroots. We do not have a board of directors. Um, we're not really, some of us are nonprofits in other states. We're, we're in all 50 states now. Um, but we're, we're highly active parents that have committed ourselves to research, you know, aligning ourselves with people that are doing, you know, valid evidence-based um, research and putting out products that are, um, that are vetted. Um, and, you know, we, we just try and push out good information. That's like one of the, the main tenets of decoding dyslexia is trying to get information out to people. But there's also a, a part of our mission that is to legislate. So we legislate and advocate and educate. That's basically the three areas that we try to focus on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's a lot of work for you guys because it took a long time for this to happen. It wasn't just it was years. <laughs> it's so, years. It's years. Yeah. And for yeah, so I mean, people need to to understand that too. That it's to to develop to get to the point that we are now isn't just something that happens on a whim. Right. Right. Yeah. Organization compare to some other. Advocacy organizations. Well, like, well, there's the International Dyslexia Association. Mm -hmm. They're clearly, you know, we we go to their conferences, we um, lean on their researchers, we collaborate with them on certain certain you know issues. Um, there, that's a professional organization. It's mainly um, researchers and educators that you know have thankfully devoted quite amount of time and energy to dyslexia. Um, so, oh, yeah. so we're different in that, you know, we are parent-based. You know, when I say that, you know, our parents, like in your world too, that come from, you know, some parents are diagnosticians. <laughs> some mm -hmm. of our parents are LSSPs. Some of our parents are special education, special educators, and some are, you know, lawyers and you know, it, it runs the gamut, you know, we're, but the parents that do have levels of expertise in certain areas, you know, when they have time, tend to lend their expertise to, to the topic at hand. Um, mm -hmm. So we're, we're a little, we're, we're different in that we are, we're, we, we run through a code of ethics, basically. So we're, we're, we're we don't make any money off of it. We don't charge for helping families. Um, we try to put on free conferences uh, for the community when we can. And um, many times we do so because we end up getting people to speak at our conferences for free because they know of the work that we do and that we're not profiting right off of it. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, it's sort of an interesting evolution, I would say. So we're, we're different, I think, mostly in that we're not uh, we're not a structured 
and we don't have a a money uh we don't we don't solicit funds and different things like that and you're more like paying it forward is what you're doing <laughs> exactly yeah we try and i think that that does compel most of the people that that i work alongside to do it and there's other dyslexia groups so many in texas local groups because of facebook and social media that really focus in on their local areas and um we all gather together um through the Texas Dyslexia Coalition to, you know, share what's happening in each district and, you know, how can we help and trends that are going on. And um, so we have a pretty wide network of, of uh, groups and in areas in the state uh, that we connect with regularly. Um, so we probably spend a little bit too much time on social media, you know, but it's the way that we communicate. Well, I, I do appreciate all your hard work because, you know, we you don't know what you don't know. And so I'm guilty as charged, been in education since 2003. And, you know, I was just trained through current districts I was with at the time. And, you know, some did it this yeah. way, taught reading this way, some did it other ways. Yeah. And you just, you just did what you were told to do. And it wasn't until probably about four years ago where everything really started to kind of like, you know, come to um, surface where we were not following evidence-based practices and, you know, I, I think school districts are finally catching on. It takes a while for yes. schools to, you know, take away curriculum that they've been using for years and then implement new curriculum and, you know, it, and it's, it's hard to teach a dog, you know, new tricks, you know, old dog new tricks. So it's, it's a transition process. We'll get there. I'm confident of it. I'm very thankful that you guys have spoken up and, you know, have done your, done what you've done to get us to where we are right now, even though we're probably not the happiest when we're trying to get all these ARD meetings and IEP meetings. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we've got well, we some ideas the about that. The child. <laughs> There's some ideas about that. And I'm glad that we can talk through some, because there are some, hopefully we can get to at the end, some, some ways to look at some of the requirements um, that hopefully make it a little less burdensome. Um, especially for districts that already have a lot of the staffing set up already, just maybe under the wrong federal law. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it was bound to happen one day. I knew it would. I knew it would be specially designed instruction. So yes. I was just waiting for the bomb to go off. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. Nazi, I'm going to let you go ahead and ask the next question. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask too about um, on the collaborating that you were also had worked with Austin ISD and my mind went straight to um, Cherry Lee because yes. he presented so many times for us and she's spoken on this platform before too and um, is just really a great role model I think for a lot of districts and, and her leadership um, that she's shown and she um, you know when you said the Austin ISD Dyslexia Stakeholders Committee I was thinking, well, yeah. wow, I, they actually have a Parents Dyslexia Stakeholders Committee. And she, I contacted her, she, I said, you'd have somebody from that committee that also wants to, she mentioned somebody. And I, I, I emailed her and um, she, she couldn't make it today, but I thought that was a really neat thing that, you know, the district actually gives you guys, gives parents a platform to advocate within their district. Yes, and just to be clear, I'm not on the committee currently, but actually I did, I was one of the founders on that committee. 
Um, there's several very active parents in Austin I see with dis kids with dyslexia. At the time, there was a school board member um, that was a parent of a dyslexic that did a lot of work with our school board um, through her position on the board. And so, you know, years ago, we decided that, you know, we needed to have a voice on for the school district. And, you know, I try my best and I and I hope everybody does um, the advocates on any level to try and be um, direct and respectful. Um, I've challenged my district for years on practices that I didn't feel were right, but in a way that we, we've always tried to work it through. And so I appreciate that Austin ISD, you know, does have a dyslexia committee and does have a parent kind of uh, focused uh, arm for that particular topic. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, I want to get name wrong. It was Suzanne Vera. Yes. Suzanne Vera. So sorry she couldn't join us. She'll probably catch the replay. But, um, but yeah, if anyone's near the Austin ISD area, you can check out that program. Yes. District. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the past? I mean, I know there's like yeah. a zillion dyslexia state laws that have, you know, if you oh go all the way back. Um, but just like the last, let's say, six, seven years, the major laws that have passed and sort of like how this one um, kind of brings it full circle. Well, I mean, the biggest, the the one I think that has been passed most recently that had a huge impact was the funding um, in HB3, so the dyslexia allotment um, that gave gave sort of incentive for school districts to identify students with dyslexia, um, hopefully provide some relief with funding for student, you know, for the the time that it was going to, you know, require to train and, and do all that. Um, that's, that's still a big, I think that was a big win. And um, that was uh, Dan Huberty from, oh boy, he's some, somewhere in Houston. He, he, he was a past chair of the education committee, but before that he was uh, always on the education committee and he had a child with dyslexia so he he was kind of their go-to. If, if if you know you wanted to do anything with dyslexia legislation, you had to go through his office. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> he's no longer and a representative. But um, I think HB three was a it was a, a milestone. Although it's my understanding that schools kind of you know just ended like maybe the gifted and talented funding and shuffle things around and like it unfortunately it's almost there's so many loopholes that exist that you think you're doing something and you're you're solving an issue but there's another strategy behind the scenes to that i think in my opinion too many districts want to keep things the same and they just shuffle stuff around um let's see another law um well i've always appreciated the academic language there Association, um, they 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 had passed a law several years ago that required to have one um, cult or similarly trained accredited person at each educational service center, so that 
the training that comes out of the ESCs um, for dyslexia would then at least be kind of overseen by someone that had the credentials to really run, make sure that the the information coming out was was up to speed, you know. Um, and uh, gosh, what else? There's so many like little tiny fine tunings that have gone on, but those those two in the past, I think, have been to me the most important from the legislative end. And then the handbook, as y'all know, um, is a component of the larger original dyslexia law passed in, I think, 1985. Um, and the handbook actually, um, you, you know, that's another area that we worked on um, to, to really make sure that that handbook then was considered in the rule, which means that it, it's enforceable or it's, it needs to be followed. It's not just a do- document floating floating around to consider. Um, so, so a lot of a lot of things don't necessarily have to happen through legislation as far as a law goes, but they can happen through rulemaking. Um, and so, I think that's always important to, for your membership to keep in mind too. Is that um, you know, you've, you know, our our law right now is going through you know another phase, which is now the implementation of the law. So um, I hope that kind of answers the background. There's just so much with dyslexia um, that it, it's such a big issue. Um, but yeah, any anything further, just go ahead and ask me. I can refocus. I had a quick question about House Bill 3, Nazi. Do you mind if I ask that really quick? Um, so there's there's these compliant programs, uh, phonics-based programs that are, um, I guess, you know, checked off by the TEA now. They, you know, they've done their, their mm-hmm. due diligence and have said, we, you know, we confirm these do meet all the different components of dyslexia instruction. And there's not many of them. There's maybe like five or six mm-hmm. different compliant programs. Are schools supposed to implement one of those five programs? Or are they still doing like a review process for some of the programs that um, haven't been found compliant yet? How's that? How does that work? Well, I'm not totally familiar with where they are with that, but I am aware that they've put out another request very recently, um, like within within the month, for school districts to kind of let them let the TEA know what programs they're using and how each program is compliant with the the five components in the handbook. Um, so you know, if are they. Is it fulfilling fluency, you know, fidelity, you know, decoding? Does it cover um, automaticity? Does it cover comprehension? Does it, you know, so like checking off, okay, we're doing program X and it covers these components. Uh, Or we're doing Y, component Y, or program Y in our district and it covers all the components. And so they're trying to create like a bigger, broader list, which may or may not have to do with what you're talking about. So... That I'm not sure. I just for for HB three, what I'm aware of is just the funding allocation per pupil for students identified with dyslexia. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure that out myself <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I know there's a right, a lot of curriculums that claim that they have, you know, all yeah. all the evidence based um, background of the science of reading, you know, behind all of their. Yes. 
and they don't. And so I'm just wondering how that's being regulated. So, but I'm glad that they're doing it. I'm glad TEA is involved in that process and something's, something is happening. It's oh, just, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, they're definitely digging in and I'm, 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 I was glad to see that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. It was just to go back to what you were saying about how not all of it's through the legislature and some of it's through changes in the operating guidelines. Mm -hmm. I, I went on that roller coaster last legislature, not this last one, but the one before that, uh, 2021. And, you know, I was following the dyslexia laws. I was like, oh, this one's passed the House. Okay, now it's in the Senate. You know, and I was watching it every day on the, yeah. on the and then, you know, it died in committee. Yes. <laughs> And then it was, it was like, oh, I died in committee. And then it was like, but they changed it anyway. <laughs> and it wasn't because of a law. You know, it was just because the state board decided to change that. Well, okay, there is background on that. So we're, we're kind of glossing over the, the big elephant in the room. And I, I touched on starting at the federal level. And uh, the issues and change that has come about now really are tied to the corrective action. And anybody that's kind of followed it a little bit more closely, um, because the TEA uh, likes to put their spin on uh, what's coming, what's coming down, what's coming out. Uh, but I always like to remind people: if you just do a Control F, a find on the corrective action documents from the U.S. Department of Education, dyslexia is by far and away mentioned, you know, multiple times more than any other issue. So we were under federal corrective action due to how our state put kids in 504 plans for dyslexia. Um, and so the change that came about in 2018 to revise the handbook was, was forced on in many ways by the corrective action. Um, so it wasn't necessarily our state law that did it, it was the federal law that they weren't following appropriately. So, um, you know, it's, it is an interesting topic because it, because dyslexia, you know, falls under many different laws and some are federal and some are state. Um, so, it, you know, the changes can come from many different angles, but I want to say that, that the bill that we passed this legislative session, the Beckley-Wilson Act, we did our best to clean it up to to a place that we feel honors the federal law so that we don't have to make any more adjustments there, um, definitely honors the rights of families, streamlines the process, and closes a lot of loopholes. So, um, yeah, so some of the stuff that happens that they do, they don't really mention, but they had to do it if they wanted to get out of the corrective action. So, um, yeah, that was... Just my soapbox. Yeah, it didn't get passed by the legislator, legislature. They realized that they had to do it in order to fulfill the federal government requirements. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that legislation, I believe, was the, the original that you're talking about was the original uh, law that we tried to pass two sessions ago. Um, I, I believe that's the one that you're kind of referring to. Yeah. And um, the 880. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. There, yes. So, yeah, that was, it's, you know, it takes years to pass laws and sometimes they don't pass. Right. I mean, there was not a given that we were going to pass this one. And I can tell you it was a daily, a daily struggle, um, a da daily meetings with 
people and curveballs coming out of you know nowhere and um we could have easily died in the senate again very easily um like we did the last session so it it's uh it was very interesting. Yeah, I looked <laughs> at a couple of old, law, you know, laws that have gotten passed, and I saw that sometimes they were law, they had been, they had died in committee for ten years before they got passed. Oh yeah, yes. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, this one's going to take ten years to pass, <laughs> and then oh you know, passed. So I was like, oh, okay, great. Uh, yeah. So what about what are some of the major events you feel like gave momentum to the passing of this law? Was it the copper the Copper's Cove um, case? Was it the Houston Chronicle articles? The the corrective action? I, I mean, you've mentioned that a couple yeah. of times. Social media events like sold the story, Wilson, Beckley Wilson's story. Like what what do you what are those things you think really gave the biggest momentum to passing this law? Well, um, first of all, all all the above. I mean, everything is in a big mixing pot and kind of bubbling up, right? So you can't you can't run from everything. <laughs> um, and and I, it's funny because the last session we we tried to pass thirty eight eighty, and you know families are coming from all over the state. No one gets paid to do any of this. They're they're pulling their kids out of school. The kids, you know, it's it's a lot on families to to do advocacy work and uh, you know Dyson committee and we were we had gotten so far with we passed unanimously you know in the house and uh, it just it just came down to being a bad bill and we were, we were fortunate that the um, that Harold Dutton who was the chair of the education committee was our sponsor for the bill and he was willing to kill the bill because we just said we don't want to pass a law that sucks <laughs> so but, i mean we we want to pass something that's meaningful so it, it died and i think we we honestly between the last session and this session we weren't up for doing it again we just were not we weren't thinking about it we all felt kind of defeated it was a disappointment but at the end of the day um you know strategy i guess a lot of times um sponsors will just refile a bill okay so out of nowhere, all of a sudden, 3880 had a new bill number. It was it was on the docket for you know we we just got alerted you know hey you're, there's a dyslexia bill it's refiled right, and so we we are all like okay well I guess we better get back in the game because we don't want a bad bill to go through so that kind of forced really this this particular version of the bill that we have now as a law really was pushed back on parents to have to come back just out of probably a technicality in how the legislators work because of how they have to file bills and, you know, they get a slot for the bill, the lower the number of the bill, the more chance it's going to get heard. It's, it's, it's just a big, it's a big uh, race against time. Um, but I will say that, you know, we, the Copper's Cove case, um, I mentioned we do collaborate. Um, we do have a pro bono attorney that works uh, for us. So most of the the things that we try to push through, we want to make sure that that these are valid. They do align with state, uh, federal law. You know, we're not trying to do something that would then be overturned or, you know, so our, our attorney, um, 
I believe was involved with uh, the Copper's Cove case. And um, and we, we as Decoding Dyslexia actually wrote an amicus brief for the federal Fifth Circuit on the Copper's Cove case. So I'm very aware of that. Um, the Houston Chronicle articles, of course, I don't think any of us would be where we are now without those articles that went out that kind of forced the corrective action on the state. Um, because it, it brought attention, all of those things brought attention to the legislators. So as much as we parents and you know other organizations want to make sure that our issues are important, when media gets involved in you know sort of more high stakes funding uh, is getting restricted to the state and you know millions of dollars because they're out of compliance with federal law, people are going to start to try and make something work. So um, you know the only the only thing I can say is they're all the above impacted the the law that we have right now and. Beckley Wilson uh, is a, the daughter of a good friend of mine um, who the, she has dyslexia and she would be the student that originally spoke at our first hearing, our first uh, rendition of the bill 30, when it was 3880. And she, she was just so articulate and well-spoken and she described how she wasn't given the full evaluation. She was given a dyslexia evaluation and and she, they missed all the other comorbidities that she had. Um, and the program wasn't working because she was in a program that they were putting all these kids in and they weren't kind of figuring out what, what the needs of the child in the program were. And so they ended up, she ended up really struggling in school. And for many, many reasons that are heartbreaking, um, the family pulled the pulled her out and put her in a private school that focuses on dyslexia. And, you know, she was thriving there and her self-esteem and all the things that were kind of crushing her were kind of washed away. And so when Beckley spoke, she really spoke from the heart. And as you all know, in your professional world, the kids that have disabilities, you know, there's so much potential in each child. And a lot of times it really takes the, the testing to sort of figure out what's interfering with this child not being successful. And it's never just one thing, right? I mean, it's never just dyslexia. I mean, rarely is it ever. So, um, so all these things kind of mix together um, to, to really get us to focus back on what, what do we need to do this time around since our bill is now all of a sudden it has life to it um, because of somebody filed it again. Um, and, and it kind of just made us rethink how we were going to approach it this session. So, which we, we did come up with a list of, you know, things that we felt were important, that we wanted to close loopholes, make it easier for schools and, you know, everything that we felt needed to be done to kind of end it. So, cause we didn't want to do it again. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, we bit off a little bit more than I thought we could chew, but I felt like we, we don't want to come back another session. You know, we, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's emotionally draining. It's a daily thing to go through this. So I can only imagine. I mean, in first grade, wasn't she, did she do first grade twice? 
I believe so. Um, yeah, I believe they wanted to retain her. I can't remember all the very specific things, but what I will say is she's an incredibly, very, uh, she's incredibly smart. She's incredibly creative. She's super talented and she's got really one of the best attitudes. Um, and I'm, you know, sadly, I'm, you know, I think when she was not identified appropriately, uh, it was very different for her. And I've seen mm-hmm. it time and time again. And I'm sure y'all in your profession uh, understand the impact on a child when, when their disability is not recognized and the child starts internalizing and people. Yeah. I think uh, the the biggest impact so far from this transition with it being not only us doing the, not us, I shouldn't say that. It's just, yeah. you know, diagnosticians and a whole multi-disciplinary um, team doing this eval- evaluation. It's, it's not only diagnosing kids that are like those very high-functioning um, students mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously you can see it right away that, oh, this is very unexpected, but there's also, yeah. you know, dyslexia is a spectrum is. and there's, there's students that are, you know, they're, they're still, they still have sufficient and adequate intelligence. It's just, it's not as, um, you know, there's, it's going to take a little bit more work to get them to be able to read than somebody that has, I guess, more of a higher intelligence and has other strengths to, mm-hmm. in, other compensation skills to lean on when, right. you know, so th- it's, it's been good that students now that would normally just go on the special ed route and not the dyslexia route, um, they would go with special ed, but what were they using? Were they using all the evidence um, based components of dyslexia instruction? And, uh, you know, I can't answer that personally from my, when I was a special ed teacher, uh, no, I would get a student right. with a basic reading disability and I was, doing what I was taught, you know, told to do or taught yeah. to do. And I wasn't taught to use all the evidence-based um, components of dyslexia instruction. Right. So it's benefiting not only students like, you know, Becky, but it's benefiting students that are going to be more challenging to help to learn to read. And everybody deserves to learn to read. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's, it's, it, this is so important. And why I feel like it's, it, when this process of the shift is sort of, smoothed out and people are, you know, hopefully they, school districts will do the right thing. It will benefit in so many ways because kids can learn to read. And it's at the heart of their learning. We're talking about like the heart of every day you go to school and you've got to be able to access that curriculum. And no amount of assistive technology is ever going to replace the need for a student to read independently. And we know we have so much research, and I, kn- I know you've got sold a story in here, but I mean, there's so much research out there. And, you know, unfortunately, there's been, you know, training and philosophies in the past that have not aligned with what science has told us for 20 years um, and or longer. <laughs> um, and so there's going to be have to be a correct course. And it's not the educator's fault that they went to a school and they learned, you know, a method that's you know really not backed up by science it's but it's it's the acknowledgement that we all can do better and that we all can learn more that's going to propel us to be successful both professionally and 
you know, for the benefit of the students in Texas. And, right. And even the, um, from the, you know, not even getting into the districts, it's just start, it starts from the university is where you're being taught well, to be an educator. <laughs> exactly. And that's so, really the next level of legislation. If I was to do anything again, um, you know, and I did explore with Donna Howard is my, uh, my legislator uh, zoned and I reached out to her office to see, you know, what they were doing on higher ed. Because after this, it 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 needs to happen at the, the colleges of education and where people are learning their trade um, and craft because we can't allow this to continue. And, you know, I guess the literacy academies, um, although there's some resentment, I think, to the time, that was one actually law that, that was important that, you know, wasn't specific to dyslexia, but really is part of the movement. Um, and we're grateful that the literacy academies are trying to fill the gap. Um, so, you know, well, I think we're, does, we'll get there. It does make sense. I mean, if you, if all kids can learn from using, you know, some of the structured literacy um, or evidence-based components of dyslexia instruction, I mean, why not teach everybody, you know, the whole right. classroom because they're all going to benefit from it. You know, yeah, and so. I think the you know the difference is, is that when the disability impacts it, and it's clearly it's going to go back to the unexpectedness. Okay, well most kids are learning this pretty quickly, right? Because they don't have any type of barrier to learning through the science of reading. The kids that are going to struggle, you know, are going to most likely have some sort of disability that's impacting how they're able to how long and how many repetitions it's going to take for them to, to get that into their long-term memory. You know, exactly. So. It, it definitely needs to be more systematic for them. It's going to, yes. Yeah. So it's going to require more of a, more of a scaffolded and, or breakdown or just yes. repeat instruction. Whereas the rest can you yeah. know, maybe be taught at once. Like I think Dr. Kilpatrick says a normal, yeah child that's presented a word at least usually by the fourth time they have that word memorized they've mapped the phonemes in yeah. they've collected that you know the, the letter strings together and then they're sold they have that word now mm -hmm. banked into their orthographic lexicon whereas yeah. a student with uh, a reading disability or dyslexia is just it's going to take several trials and different methods to finally get that to probably stick in that long-term memory so you're right well, I hate to deviate from those questions, so let me get yes. back to the next question. Yes. Um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, so who did take the first initiative to write the law in the 2021? Like, what kind of experts were involved in that? And I'm just curious how that all looked. Well, I will just tell you, it it was refiled by Harold Benton's office. The So he, he was the sponsor of the prior bill. And he was furious when it came back from the Senate. It was just basically gutted. And so I think he took a really personal interest, clearly in the bill. I mean, he, um, and they refiled. And so when it kind of bubbled up, you know, we, we grasped onto it. And, you know, if you notice the bill, is he is not the sponsor of the bill that passed, right? So... Um, there were several different things that were going on in the background, but the bill the bill actually ended up getting filed by uh, Representative Steve Toth, um, and our Senate sponsor um, was oh, 
Tan Parker. So um, Steve Toth picked up our bill, um, and you know we we basically wrote it with his staff. Um, the bill originally was different when it was kind of brought up originally, and uh, it's 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 complicated. Put it that way. Um, we we had a lot of people to kind of draw on um, for wording and legis legislation, and but it really was a parent push and effort. And um, there's a lot of talent. So what happens is okay, the actual bill text is never so our text that we developed and Steve Toth filed then goes to it's called the legislative board or I can't, I'm the, the legislative something board and it's a it's a small group of people that work at the capitol and they take every bill and they rewrite it so that it fits the code that you're that you're discussing in the bill and then they then it comes back from the legislative I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, board, and, and it comes back, and sometimes it looks similar to what your idea was, and sometimes it's like, whoa, this isn't exactly what we wanted. So then you go back and you rewrite it, and then they have to send it back to this legislative committee again. And it's a process that takes time. And, and I'll go back to why some of these legislators file refile bills, because the lower the number of the bill the sooner they can get it to this legislative board for writing it properly and having it submitted back to the to the member. Does that make sense at all? But um, it's not. It's it goes through revisions kind of behind the scenes so that the legal terminology is correct and um, the time the the clock of time is ticking when all this is going on because. There's thousands of bills. Only so many can be heard in a committee. And you have to have the wording right before it's even up for consideration for the, com the education committee to hear. Okay, so, um, so I, I mean, I'll give 100% credit to Steve Toth's office on who wrote the original text of, the, of this bill um, to get it where it, where it needed to be. Because without his office um, kind of managing that process along the way, our bill with that high of a number may not have even made it on the calendar to get heard in a, in a committee. So um, it's yeah, a crazy it's, process. <laughs> it's even just one word in the bill or even when I'm looking at the house, yeah. the, the, the questions and the answers on that house bill 3829. And I'm like, I think I can't remember what question it was, maybe 11. And it talked about how we should consider dyslexia instruction when you have a student that has a dyslexia diagnosis. But then they talk about how, you know, it, it, you have to read the whole thing until it finally says, you know, like really you're not allowed to deviate from this, <laughs> this evidence-based instruction, but it says the word considered. And I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. No, I know. So, well, those are all words that get hashed out. So those are words that you sometimes have to live with because they're not going to always write that you must do this and you must do that. 
um, sometimes, okay, you take the consider or the may wording, knowing that, okay, you've got a lot of work to do if this law passes. And when it gets to whoever is going to be writing the regulations on it, whether it's the TEA or the SBOE or, you know, whoever else gets to sort of move the, the actual law into to something that works, you know, that's guidance or regulations, the words matter. Every single word, every single comma in the bills matter. And so we, um, you know, I can just let you know that. <clears throat> so we, we, we had the similar thing happen this session where we passed unanimously through the House. We had a lot of support um, and it got to the Senate and we got a really creepy bill back from the Senate. So the Senate, you know, had to file the, their same bill, but it goes through a different sort of legislative process and they came back with their own wording. And the wording of the House bill and the Senate bill were, were totally different. Um, and, you know, we we ended up having to have a conversation with the three members that were key, which was Steve Toth, who's the representative, Senator Parker, and, Br- and Senator Crichton, who is the chair of the Education Committee. We somehow, Steve got the two of them in the same hallway with all of us and the kids. And we just had to tell them, you know, they're like, well, we're excited to pass your bill. And we're like, like the way the bill is now in the Senate, we'd rather that we didn't have a bill because we don't want to pass a bill that's not going to help move things along. And it's, and it's really poorly written. So they were kind of like shocked, but again, they, you know, especially Crichton, um, he said, look, we don't want to, we don't want to spend our time either with, with working on something that's not going to be effective. And we all went back to the table that day, that afternoon, and we were able to kind of recraft what had come out of the Senate and make it something that we could work the seven, seven tenets that we had uh, tried to incorporate all along to change course for, for the state and dyslexia. But, I mean, we, we could have died easily in the Senate this, this time. And I probably would have felt badly about it, but I would have felt worse if the bill would have moved on the way that it was originally coming out of the Senate. So you know, I think you have to have a pretty thick skin to deal with the legislative process because it's it's a roller coaster <laughs> and it, and it's hard and there's there's a, there's a, just a lot of a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that that don't make sense, but it's it's politics, and um, so yeah, we could we could have not had a bill very easily, several times. <laughs> I some some people have asked me that you know couldn't join but asked me to ask some questions. Well, one yes. of the questions, I, which I actually wondered this question, and I don't know if you you know exactly the answer, but uh, I'm sure we'll figure it out. But you know, in the past, if a kid qualified for dyslexia, they had to have so many minutes a day of dyslexia instruction. Had to be, what is it, 300 minutes a week or whatever it is. Right. And um, we sometimes feel like we have some students who, <clears throat> like the different disabilities, are on a, you know, have a spectrum of the way, the degree that this disability impacts them. Right. And the CEO 
the therapist sometimes feels like they don't need 40, you know, 300 minutes. And, you know, and right. if, if it's right. truly a special education service, we would, you know, the, the IEP committee would determine what that least uh-huh. restrictive environment for that child would be for that right. service. But we feel like this, you know, that, the, the, the and I don't know if the, this old dyslexia law that says you have to have 300 minutes or whatever it is, um, still, you know, is, is a requirement now, but we felt like that was taking the committee's, I guess, responsibility of determining least restrictive environment and saying, you know, I, it doesn't matter what you think right. about what the state needs. This is what they need. They absolutely have to have. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have sort of have this flexibility of saying, well, this kid might need it, need two days a week, or mm-hmm. maybe they need 30 minutes a day instead of, and I know you got to implement a program with fidelity and I get all of that, but some kids just, you know, didn't need so much right. instruction like that in order to right. get some of the skills. So yeah. I, is, does this new one replace that? Is, are we going to have more flexibility in the amount of time? <laughs> well, I mean, here's what I'll say. I, I'd say you mentioned Kilpatrick. Um, there's several researchers that are very uh, reliable and well-respected. And even like the Meadows Center here in, you know, Austin where I am. Dr. Sharon Vaughn, she's one of the most respected as well. Um, I would say most of them would would never say that you could we could remediate a child, you know, with less than a certain amount of time. Um, and so, two days a week, I, I don't know that 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 would be. I, I don't know any program that would claim that that would be effective, and I don't know any research that would back that up. So, whether somebody thinks that that may or may not be what the child needs. Um, I believe the way that the handbook is going to sort of control that process as well a little bit, that, you know, the school district's going to pick a program or two programs, and that's going to be the baseline where, where you're going to start. And if it's, you know, take flight, you know, the fidelity statement, you would probably be, be using that fidelity statement and um you know if if it's 45 minutes a day you know four days a week or whatever the program kind of requires that's what should be implemented because that's where the research that validates that program is coming from and as much as we like to think that you know some kids might need it as much and you know well maybe they're just doing really well because the program's working for them and it you know, I, I just, I I don't know, I don't have the answer, but what I will say is I think most of the programs for dyslexia do have research behind them, and um, I'm not aware of any that would just be, like, two days a week. Unless they're, like, substantial amounts of time two days a week, and, um, yeah. So, you know, as far as the ARD committee, you know, I feel very strongly that Yes, ARD committees are the ones that should be determining many things. Um, so, especially um, that the kid needs specialized instruction, which dyslexia intervention is considered in our state now because of our bill. Um, sadly, because of our bill, because it really should have been that all along. Um, and I think the committee's role is to determine is the program that's being implemented meeting the kids' needs, yes or no? 
And so then during mm -hmm. our, like, a, you know, during progress monitoring and, you know, subsequent ARD committees, that's when, you know, you might determine that the, the kid is, has moved past his goals and, you know, the program worked and maybe they just need to work on fluency now. And so you'd probably, as a committee, decide that and decide what type of fluency work the child needs. But as far as like a child learning, like the basic components of reading, you know, I, I don't know of any programs that would just say, you know, that have evidence behind them that would say two days a week. So. And, and same goes with the classroom size or the, the groups that meet. I mean, yes. I think there's, there's a lot of, um, like you said, you have to do it with fidelity. And if that program says this, this program will not yep. work with more than X amount of children in this, in this group, you know, you kind of have to, and I think our district has always stuck to less than six. Yeah. Well, there, are there some, must be a reason, yeah. a rhyme or reason for that, you know. Well, and that's the problem. So one of my husband's uh, uh, colleagues, wife is um, a cult in a district. Um, and she talked to me this weekend and she, she was saying, look, the program that I use, the max is six to eight. And she's al already got 10 kids. And she's like, what am I supposed to do? And I said, you know, you really need to have a talk with your school board immediately. And you need to talk with your administration. And I know it's hard conversations and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not something that in your profession, I don't know where the line is where you can kind of advocate, but, you know, I think it's important that you engage with your families and let them know that they should be talking to their school boards. And that was the first thing I did with Austin ISD as soon as our bill went into effect, which was, you know, the, you know, the day that it was signed, I immediately contacted my school board and I said, look, y'all, this is effective immediately. I want you to get this on your, you know, radar and this is what you're going to have to do. And you need to plan for staffing because it will require sort of a staffing adjustment if it's done right. You know, um, and so a lot of the staff that was in 504 can, you know, we made sure the bill allowed those people not to have to be special education certified to work under the special education system um, so that you could, you know, in our opinion, so that you could transfer the knowledge and skill into a, in, under the umbrella of the IDEA. Um, but, I mean, staffing needs to happen and, and for diagnosticians too. And LSSPs and everyone else that kind of is impacted in the system of the bill cycle, um, you know, you need more colleagues. You know, you can't shoulder this on your own. And so, you know, a lot of families, like mine included, now that the bill's passed, we're working on implementation. And that's part of it, making sure that school districts understand their obligations and that, you know, they review how they staff and um you know i hope y'all get more support um i do know that steve toth next session is going to push for more funding because we know that you know this impacts staffing and class sizes and it's going to financially impact the the districts and so we want to make sure that you know the funding is reflective of that so we really appreciate that. So yeah. uh, 
coming to the end, but we've got a little bit over time, but just a thought to close us out. Can you tell us maybe what's in the future? If, if there's future uh, dyslexia advocacy in the legislature, what what would we look forward to seeing maybe from your organization or what would you hope to see from, from us um, in terms of advocating for this? Um, and what kind of uh, feedback can maybe we help you provide that, I mean, we uh, we want to continue this discussion. I know we know we can reach out to you on decoding dyslexia on Facebook, and um, you know we hope that we can continue to collaborate. So, just thought maybe you could tell us um, what what kinds of things maybe you can we could look forward to in the future. Yeah. So, first of all, thank you so much for reaching out because this process re- really requires everybody um, to work together, and so it's 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 important, and it's and how we can best support you. We only know that by, by being able to talk and having like conversations that are, you know, collaborative. And, and a lot of times parents, you know, I think are really not in the, we, we're not invited to be a part of like the tea case conference. Okay. We're not invited to, you know, conferences that have to do with, you know, other facets of the special education system. I think though our voice is important because we're the parent of a kid that's in, in a system. So we're a gauge of where the system needs to sort of adjust. Um, and so I, I really feel honored that you would reach out and, and you know, discuss this with a parent group. Um, and so I think, you know, going forward, first of all, you know, I don't know how you can stay involved as a group of diagnosticians, but you need to be involved. And especially now that um, the SVOE is rewriting the handbook. And, um, you know, I always try and look at, sometimes it's it seems harder to advocate for kind of a stronger system. It's sometimes easier to try and weaken a law and make it sort of easier on the system. but in order for the system to be effective, it, you really need to be, you need to look at it from a strong perspective because like when you're raising your kids, right? You, you can kindly tell them to do something, but sometimes they're not going to do it unless you like set really clear expectations. And I think that's sort of similar with how laws get implemented by, by the larger school systems that there are so many demands on them that it needs to be very clear what needs to happen. So, you know, staffing, I would encourage y'all to reach out to your legislators about, you know, staffing requirements, um, training requirements. You know, are are you all equally prepared to identify dyslexia? And, you know, take a really hard, honest look at your professional development, both past and present. You know, are you really prepared or, or are there courses or, or, or something that can make you, you know, more effective. Um, you know, maybe work with the cults um, and try and come up with a better system of identification alongside their professional, with their professional credentials. Um, but the, the State Board of Education right now is something that you can all get involved with. Um, I think future legislation, um, you know, it's hard to pass legislation and it's, it requires a lot of time. But if, if anybody has an idea, I mean, you can always go to your legislator and, and just talk to them about it. And, um, 
it's it's a long shot, but it's it's sometimes worth it just to let them know that there's an issue, right? You, you don't lose by working on something, you lose by quitting. So I think that, um, you know, just generally speaking with within your own profession, you know, you, you might want to just form a little group and informally and to say, like, can we be, can we do better? What do we need to do better from our school systems? You know, how can we better serve kids? And, and then kind of analyze what that might look like and <clears throat> do your own legislation. And so, and then along the way, try and, you know, like our, our first rendition of our bill, um, the, the Academic Language Therapy Association was kind of against our bill. Um, this session, we aligned with them, and they were part of, you know, pushing it over the finish line. So um, I think the best course of action is to, to try and reach out and to other colleagues, and if you have an idea of your own, uh, to better your profession and the outcomes for kids, that you have a right to go to your legislators and try and get something done. Um, you know, it's not easy, but, you know, you can always lean on parents. You could run it by us and, you know, um, we're, you know, we, we can do it, although it's, it's a lot of work. So I don't know if that helps or if I answered, but, um, absolutely. I mean, we, this group is all about continuing our education. I right. interviewed several of the top researchers. Well, you mentioned the Meadows Center. I've yeah. interviewed Nathan Clemens, he's yeah. going to come on in December. Yes. And talk about his new book. I've interviewed Dr. Shin, who is just sort of a um, iconic figure in literacy in the United States. Yeah. He created the Dipples and yes. several others. I've I've inter I've had the support, I guess, um, in a mentor kind of role from the IES, the Institute for educational sciences has been great yeah. and helping mm -hmm. to encourage me and yes. to, to learn more about what does the research say about what learning disabilities are. We've had Dr. Mather talk about dyslexia uh -huh. here as well. And so yes. yeah, we've tried to definitely uh, push our, ourselves to continue to improve our knowledge and because we we do this diagnosticians have only been around for 50 years and we really see that we need to sort of uh, encourage each other to make our profession more have a lot of credibility you know we, if we don't continue to push ourselves you know our credibility is, is at risk so that's that's we want our our profession to be have a lot of uh, sort of respect and well regard and and right. that we will have knowledge and skills to be able to di diagnose dyslexia and other learning disabilities and be a part of that multidisciplinary team for, for all like you said the the comorbid comorbid dis diagnoses and also you know just the other um roles that we play in supporting children with all kinds of different disabilities in the schools and so yeah um that's and you're welcome here you oh. can go back you can have parents are welcome to join and listen to all of my replays i've done this is my yes. third year so i have you know every friday for for three you know now for at least two years now there's a, a lot lots of different um professionals and professors that i've interviewed and 
quite a few more. I don't know if you've heard of the, the Fuchs, Lynn and the Fuchs are coming. Of course, yeah. Yes. And I have, yeah. Um, Dr. Reynolds coming, also uh, and dyslexia. Yep. So yeah. Yeah. You're, doing, you're doing great. You're doing great work. And, and yes, I will encourage the parents to join because I, I feel like it's, it's, it's better when there's more people and ideas in the system, in, in a ecosystem. Well, so, we need to see others' perspectives, you know, diagnosticians yeah. don't see the parents' perspective or the advocate's perspective. And then, you know, same thing, you know, we, we like the parents to also sort of learn more about, you know, things, all the things that we have to consider. So, yes, um, well, I really enjoyed and, and I hope that, you know, the, the guidance coming out of TEA is fairly strong and I, I'm, I feel comfortable with that. The handbook hopefully will be helpful. Um, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, but, you know, going forward, you know, parents are there to help. So I hope that that can be like a lens that people can view view us and I've always kind of strived to to be helpful um, yeah. when I try and make policy change so uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and if there's you know any questions please share my email and I'm happy to to you know try best and if there's any concerns that you know people want to share that you know I can consider as I you know work on the implementation end of things you know, um, I'd love to know because we want it to work. Um, we want this to be a, a bill that helps everybody in the long run. So, please. All right. Well, thank you again for everything you do, and thanks for joining. And I'll let you get back to your puppy and moving your. <laughs> thank you, and all thanks, right. thanks everyone for all you do for our kids. <laughs>